Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing well. Time to dip my toe into the running waters of theology. I got a letter from a fine fellow that, uh, who I met at the Porcupine Freedom Festival. And he took issue with some of the things that I, uh, some of the arguments that I made. So I hope to at least answer some questions, clarify, or perhaps even be swayed. So when I said, well, God will send you to hell for X, he says, God doesn't send anyone to hell, not one person. Individual humans decide of their own free wills where they will spend eternity. God does not force anyone to be with someone he does not love for all eternity. Uh, a God uh, who says, if you don't love me and don't want to be with me for eternity, I will force you to be with me for eternity. So that definition of a sadist and so on. So I get the argument. I really do. And it's, a, it's an impressive argument. But let me, you know, the job of a philosopher, like it or not, is to be, be profoundly unimpressed by history. Uh, it doesn't matter how many uh, ghosts all line up like dominoes uh, behind a particular idea, leaning into it with all the force of their... Historical momentum personalities, uh, what matters is the truth. And the idea that it is not God who sends people to hell, but individuals who send themselves to hell is a very interesting one. Let me tell you what I think of that, and I hope to you know, open up the debate and the discussion with uh, other theological types. So, it's not a question of who sends who to hell. The question is, are the laws just? I mean, I've never met a libertarian anarchist voluntarist who says it is not the government who sends a drug user to prison. It is the drug user who sends himself to prison by disobeying the laws, right? So it doesn't matter if it is your actions that end up with you in prison or in hell. What matters is, is the environment or are the laws themselves just, right? So... Alexander Solzhenitsyn, as he describes in the Gulag Apicolago, sent letters, I think he was a captain on the Western, uh, Eastern Front, I guess, in World War II, and he sent letters criticizing the handling of the war and, and so on to some friends of his, and he ended up being hauled and tortured and sent to a Gulag, uh, a, a kind of concentration camp, for about 10 years. I don't think anyone would reasonably say it was not the Soviet government who sent Solzhenitsyn to be tortured and brutalized for 10 years. He chose it of his own free will. Uh, he chose the actions and so on. Uh, I don't think that anybody would really make that argument. We would recognize that the environment, the laws themselves, were unjust. Uh, and, and that really is the question. So I've also not heard of libertarians who defend thought crime. You know, that, that a, a thought can be a crime. And Jesus very clearly says, as, to, as does uh, God himself, that if you think, uh, say, if you look at a woman with lust, that is the same as having um, had sex with her. So it is a thought crime. And I don't know a lot of libertarians who defend the concept of, of thought crime. So let's sort of put this in, into practice. Hopefully this will make some sense. So let's say that you have a wife and she just stops having sex with you. And this goes on month after month after month. And then you're having a bath. Let's just say you don't masturbate or whatever. You're having a bath. And in comes uh, a three salacious and scantily clad young ladies who then proceed, uh, proceed to do a lap dance um, in your bath. And you haven't had sex for a long time and all that kind of stuff. And your wife is standing in the doorway, comes into the doorway, and 
she says, aha, you have an erection. That means you don't love me. That means that you, we're going to get divorced and it's 150% your fault. You did this completely and utterly totally of your own accord. You are 150% responsible for our divorce. We would get that's kind of a setup, right? I mean, you have an involuntary response called an erection to the presence of sexual stimuli after sexual deprivation. Not a lot you can do (laughs) to prevent that. Uh, And so a situation where you say, well, this, you know, you had the erection with the lap dancing trinity of sexy hotness in the bathtub and therefore you obviously don't want to be married and the divorce is 100% your fault and your wife is, right? Well, she didn't have sex with you. She hired the lap dancers. She brought them to your house. She sent them into you when you were a bath and then she gets angry at you for this, right? And the reason that sort of using this metaphor is sexual attraction is an involuntary stimuli. You look at a woman, do you find her attractive? And this is what God set up right? This is what got set up. So it's kind of like a trap to have an involuntary mental or physiological response, which then becomes a sin. Uh, this is sort of a trap. It's not a very just situation at all. And uh, so that, I think, is something to, I mean, there's this uh, paradox, I guess, a, a problem that I have with the theological setup, which is uh, God designs us, uh, has created us with the specific necessary characteristics abilities and attributes called, you have to be rational and empirical in order to survive as a human being. You must be rational and empirical to survive as a human being, right? If you don't, if you, uh, if you hunt a tree, you're not going to get anything to eat. If you plant stones, you will raise nothing that you can eat. If you, I don't know, plant summer crops in the winter and vice versa, you get nothing. Uh, and if you attempt to bring down your rabbits with a blade of grass, you are not going to, right? So you have to be rational and empirical in order to survive. And then God says that, but the ultimate in rationality, sorry, but the ultimate in belief is to believe that which is against reason and against evidence. Right? This again, this is kind of like a setup. So everything that you need in order to survive as a human being is reason and evidence and objectivity and all of that kind of stuff. But then the complete opposite is necessary in order to be virtuous in, in your belief of a deity. And so, again, this is just kind of like a, a setup. It's, here's everything that you need in order to survive. I'm not going to give you, uh, if, if you use faith in hunting, you will die. If you use reason with God, you don't believe. This is um, a paradox. I mean, I think we can kind of charge a deity with, with, with not being particularly consistent or helpful in these kinds of areas. To have heaven and hell hinge upon faith when faith in all other contexts of your life will get you killed. Okay, I've fallen the last 20 times, but I'm going to have faith this time I jump off the brick wall, I'm going to fly. I have faith that it's going to rain uh, milk and honey uh, and make me, right? So if you apply faith to every other area of your life, uh, you, you die or you starve or bad things happen. So it's kind of a setup. Human beings reason and evidence machines and then you have to believe in it deity for whom there's no reason or evidence. In fact, it's the opposite, right? So that's kind of like a setup. Now, he also talks about in here, the fear of God is the beginning of uh, wisdom. Uh, One of the panel members was scandalized that children were being taught to fear God. And this I thought was interesting. Uh, He says that um, there are 
uh, problems with the translation, uh, and you see this quite a bit. Spare the rod, spoil the child. The rod is supposed to be maybe uh, the, the, the staff of a, uh, a shepherd's crook or a lead and teacher and so on. And, you know, the, the Virgin Mary, the old word was a young woman, could be a virgin, why not? And the translation thing is kind of a problem from a rational standpoint. So God inspires people to write down the right words, right? That's good. And then there's a lot of translations. But then why doesn't God inspire people to write down the correct translation? Right? It's kind of important, wouldn't you say? And we already know that God will intervene because he intervenes to set bushes on fire, to uh, make uh, all the world die in a rainstorm except for Noah and some animals and Bill Cosby. It's been a while since I read it. And so he already intervenes like crazy. And so why wouldn't he just, and he intervenes to create the text, to inspire people to write the text down in the first place. So why wouldn't he intervene to inspire the translators to use the correct term in the translation? That's kind of important, right? If it's a life or death law and people have had it mistranslated and have been given the wrong idea, right? So if spare the rod, spoil the child, or where they say, if you you know, if you beat your son, he won't die. But if you, if you don't beat him, he's going to go to hell forever. If those are all mistranslations, if, you know, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, if you're not supposed to fear God, it's supposed to be something else, kind of important. If we've got these rules that we go to heaven or we go to hell based on, it's pretty important that God get the right rules to the people. Otherwise, he's punishing for them for something that they can't possibly understand because the meaning has been reversed. But that's, that's not fair, right? I mean, people who get the first translation do great. Then people who get the opposite translation, do they go to hell? It's not their fault they got the opposite translation. Do they go to heaven because it's not their fault they got the opposite translation? It doesn't matter what you do. If the IRS puts out in everybody's, like in all the laws, and if everybody, in everybody's 1040 or whatever it is, that you're allowed... $30,000 of deductions instead of whatever it is, right? Let's say it's $15,000. you are allowed $30,000 worth of deductions. And it's consistent, except for, you know, one or two memos on someone's computer. They don't get to say to everyone next year who followed the letter of the law, oh, sorry, it was a typo. It was a mistranslation. So now you all owe us $50,000, right? That you can't retroactively impose a law if you yourself make a mistake. So, bleh. The argument that translations um, solve problems in the text doesn't make any sense at all. You can't, you can't reverse the meaning and then hold people responsible if you have the infinite capacity to get the correct meaning across. And God, of course, has the in infinite capacity and is perfectly willing to intervene, uh, has in the past, will in the future. That's what prayer is all about. So the idea that um, you can get out of problematic texts by claiming that they are mistranslations doesn't work. Either God allowed the mistranslation, in which case he's allowing people to be proselytized and led with completely incorrect moral beliefs and then holding them responsible for the original moral belief, which they've never heard of because they don't speak ancient Aramaic or whatever it was in. It's one possibility, which is obviously manifestly unjust. Or he is supporting the new text, which means he's contradicting the old text, right? See, when it comes to moral judgment, moral judgment, the first thing, I strongly argue this, the first thing is not to study the effects of the law, to study people's responses to the law, or to study the law itself. 
the first thing to study is the lawgiver. Don't study the effects of the law. Don't study the law itself. Study the lawgiver. I mean, to take an example, if you have, you, you, you're a smoker, you really want to quit smoking, you sign up to a quit smoking seminar. Guy comes up and says, you know, quitting smoking is the best thing ever. It's the most important health decision. It's absolutely essential. And I have a foolproof way with which you can quit smoking. Guaranteed to make you quit smoking no matter what. And then he lights up a cigarette. Would you spend a lot of time trying to figure out his, his, his methodology, his way of doing it? Of course not. You'd be like, well, this is ridiculous. This is like having a 350-pound guy show up as an expert on dieting. Maybe, 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 but come on. I mean, this is not, what, this is not how we spend our life. The guy who shows up in a giant chicken suit to an executive level interview at a Fortune 500 company might be the smartest businessman in the history of the world, but there's nobody in the world who will hire him and try and figure that out. They'll be like, look, if you don't have the judgment to show up in at least not in a chicken suit, doesn't have to be a three-piece suit, maybe not even a two-piece suit, but not a chicken suit, the suit, and then, you know, this is, right? You don't judge the resume. You look at the person and how they're presenting themselves. You don't judge the diet. The first thing you judge is whether the guy is overweight who's telling you all about the diet. You don't judge the smoking cessation program if the guy is smoking. You just get up and walk out because either smoking isn't important or it is important as this guy says it is, but he hasn't been able to quit, which means he either doesn't follow his own program, which means he doesn't believe in it, or he does follow his own program, but it doesn't work. So no matter what, you don't stick around. And I mean, just go, go look at at, uh, all of the diet books. See if you can find one obese guy on a diet book, one guy puffing on an antacid. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? So you judge the lawgiver. You judge the person pre- presenting the arguments or the entity presenting the arguments. And this is a very, sadly, is a very quick process with the Old Testament deity and with, with Jesus, but thou shalt not kill. Uh, not killing, not murdering is a great virtue. And to murder is a great evil. It's a mortal sin, not even a venal, it's a mortal sin. Okay, well, God kills everyone except Noah and his family and some animals. Murders everyone. The, the children in the womb, the, the babies, the innocent little children, the, the good people, that kills everyone. So, the thou shalt not kill, if it's true, then God is evil. He's violating thou shalt not kill. If thou shalt not kill is not true, but it's being presented as a moral commandment, then it's meaningless because it's being presented as something that is true, but it's not true. So you look past the laws to the lawgivers. This is the essence of voluntarism. I don't care what the laws are. Do the people in charge have to follow them? If yes, then we have a state of freedom. We have no state. If no, then the laws are being given to you so that you will not compete with the evildoers, right? Thou shalt not steal is given to you so that you don't compete with the tax collectors, right? Thou shalt not murder is given to you so you don't compete with the military-industrial complex. You understand? Thou shalt not assault and kidnap and imprison is so that you won't compete with the police force. Not because they want to do good, but because they want to do evil and they don't want you to do evil because if you do evil, their evil is left profitable, right? If everyone steals, everyone starves. If you are the greatest thief is the one who can convince you not to steal, but that stealing is good for him that he, you will then voluntarily give your stuff to him. It's incredibly efficient and, and so on. So you look at the lawgiver. 
and his adherence to the universal law that he proposes. That's very, very important. Um, uh, thou shalt not kill. God not only does kill, but encourages killing. Uh, he encourages uh, the, the, the murder and the rape of innocents uh, when uh, towns are, are taken over. He, I mean, again, you, uh, you, you can read tons of quotes about this. Evilbible.com is a good place to go. And that's, you know, that's the problem that's really hard to, to overcome. If thou shalt not kill is true, then God is evil. And sorry, but I mean, this is, he kills. He kills and murders the innocent all the time. Or, or approves it, encourages it. If thou shalt not kill is not true, then God can be good, but we have a problem because we're being told something, to, we're being told not to do something that is good, which is a bad commandment. <laughs> Don't do that which is good. So if, if thou shalt kill is good, God gets rescued, but then he becomes bad for telling people to do bad things. If thou shalt not kill is true, then God is telling us to do things that are good, i.e. don't kill, but he himself is killing wantonly. So, again, these are just problems that you can't overcome. Uh, you, you can't overcome. So, I, you know, I just wanted to sort of point out some of these, uh, these issues around uh, this letter that I got. It was a long letter, and I really do appreciate, really do appreciate the time that people spend to send me theological questions. Uh, these are my perspective. Uh, I'm certainly not going to claim that they're the ultimate final answer on everything, but this is where I think philosophy leads us to. I mean, we have to be profoundly unimpressed with history, with grandeur, with tradition, all of these things. I, this is, comes out of my life as an entrepreneur. You have to be profoundly unimpressed by your greatest achievements from last year, let alone um, the most monumental cathedrals of achievements from your culture for thousands of years. So I always try and look at it from a blank slate. And I must, sadly, I must judge the lawgiver by the law that he gives, no matter how big and powerful the lawgiver is. The lawgiver is bound by the law, or evil and hypocrisy are the inevitable conclusions. Thank you so much for watching. I'll talk to you soon.